head into the Ringerverse to stay up to date with all things superheroes and nerd culture entertainment. Hosted by a rotating lineup of superfans at the Ringer, including Mallory Rubin and Van Lathan, shows will provide instant reactions to blockbuster releases, insightful backstories on canon, and mind-bending theories, as well as fresh takes on the latest news and rumors. Check out the Ringerverse on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. Listeners, welcome. This is Sound Only. I'm Justin Charity. And I'm Micah Peters. We're your Sound Only co-host, here to record our deepest, darkest thoughts about the first season of the new racial horror TV anthology series, Them. Subtitled Covenant. Them Covenant. This is a controversial show. Let us establish that up front. Yeah, yeah. Um, duly, because this is a race anthology series with a lot of, of so many things to say, there are a lot of, of opinions about it that you can read all over the internet. Yeah, and not just racial, but like racial horror, um, which is its own thing, right? Yeah. Um, these are horror movies with larger things that they would like to be about. Yes. And in this case, let's just set it up for the people first. Them, season one, them covenant, second great migration. You've got this family, the Emery's, right? You've got the husband, Henry, the wife, Lucky. you got two beautiful girls, Ruby and Gracie. I mean, and, the, like, wait, we got to pause to say that both Henry and Lucky are both beautiful. Played by Ashley Thomas and Deborah Ayurende. Um, yeah. They are both absolutely gorgeous, but continue. Yeah. Great family. And they are, we, we come to understand sort of in the beginning, right? Like they're fleeing North Carolina for California. And they arrive in this sort of conventionally beautiful suburb in what is then Compton, California, which is filled with uh, white people in like similarly designed houses, right? It's like a white suburb. It's Stephardy. 
Yeah. Yeah, it's very stop pretty. And these white people see these black, this black family roll up with their moving van and they lose it. You know, and it's the kind of old school neighborhood thing where a neighborhood is a neighborhood. And so everybody's supposed to come out, knock on your door and bring cookies and lemonade. Right. So it's people all up in your business the moment you move in, except these people are black and the neighborhood is white. And as soon as they see the family moving in, they are ready to they, they're like, we are going to haze these people until they leave. Right. Is that basically it? Yeah. I mean, like the, the, the very first instance of, of this is like, it begins with like, uh, you know, kind of frenzied confusion at like, who are these, who are these, these, they're the, the, the new family moving it across the street. They're Negroes. What, what, what are we going to do about this? And then I think that the show is very like, uh, the, the, the directors of the first couple episodes are like very, concerned with literalizing the white gaze so there's just a lot of like a greek chorus of white people standing like yeah uh, constantly 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 constant greek chorus of white people standing and looking disgusted um the first instance of that might be lucky and the girl's first day at home and uh betty played by allison pill uh, the 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 lady that lives across the street and kind of like the head of the unofficial neighborhood watch uh, gets her cohort of housewives and they set up lawn chairs and a radio out in front of the window and they start playing old racist song. It's the Congo song. It's the Congo song. Yeah, it's the Congo song. And it is kind of like an intensified depiction of the actual kind of psychological uh chinese water torture that like kind of took place for these families that were uh moving uh uh moving westward in the great migration um to east compton for instance and and we should note that throughout the the narrative is um it's two-pronged it's bi-coastal right so you have on one hand in the beginning immediately you're setting up this tension of this black family in this white suburb the white people are going to try to pressure them out. It seems like they're willing to go to the mattresses on this. So there's that part of the conflict. But then through flashbacks, right, you you also get the sense that back south, right, back in North Carolina, there's this other thing that specifically is haunting Lucky and is the thing that has literally and metaphorically driven that family out of North Carolina in the first place. And that you basically there's the sort of mystery of what exactly happened there that drove these people to this place in California that doesn't want them. Right. So you have the family and they're not wanted in two different places. Right. They don't really, they're sort of, I don't know. It's sort of Compton is them splitting the difference between not being wanted in North Carolina and not being, you know, driven out of North Carolina, not belonging in California. Yeah, it's the the uh, the show makes a point to like the racism in of of the rural South is more overt, and uh, the and the racism on the on the West Coast is like more insidious until it becomes overt. Oh, uh, see, I I actually would like to push back. We can maybe do this in the next segment when we talk about episodes. 
I think my biggest problem, in fact, with the show is that I think it is horribly inept at drawing any sort of nuanced distinctions between well, that's, that's like, the what's that happening is, in North Carolina and what's happening in California. I actually that think is the, show the is bad. distinction that the show attempts to make, but I mean, like, I don't even think it attempts is the thing. I really don't think it attempts because I think that I tell I tell you what, we can save it for the next segment. Like, let's. We should at least, I think, set up just, you know, Lena Waithe, Little Marvin, creative team with this show. I know you got opinions about Queen and Slim, probably. <laughs> like, you know. I mean, you know I ain't watched that Levi's commercial. Um, <laughs> the, the, but yes, it is. It is produced by Lena Waithe, created by Little Marvin. And this is a black show. This it's is a, this it's, is, yeah. it's a black show, but like I want to specify that it's a black show created by um it's a black show created by a showrunner that still uses the term black bodies. Um so Oh yeah, I'm so that's glad like, you put it yeah, that Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm just saying like that so so expect the shortcomings to, you know, reflect that. Yeah, man, I'm so glad we, we we're going to take it there this episode. <laughs> <laughs> Can we I I would like to um, before we get into talking about individual episodes, you know, as usual, can we sort of lay our cards out on the table here in terms of what our overall assessment is or sort of where our heads are at with this show? Yeah. Um, do you want to go first or should I go first? I- I'll go first. I, um, there is a lot of talk about this show, about it going too far right in its uses of violence i would say from the midpoint onward it's it's the sense in which i've just seen people describe this show as trauma trauma porn right it's a very violent show um it has really blunt force way of talking about race everything is super obvious it's not a very subtle show i don't know that i hate this show as much as I've seen people on the internet hate this show. I specifically don't know that I object to the use of violence as strongly as other people do. And yet this show, I I find this show to be almost profoundly hollow and vapid and kind of mismanaged in terms of its narrative. And it's, it, it is a, it would be one thing if it was a, an unambitious show and I was just sort of bored with it, but instead it actually feels quite ambitious and it, it feels very dutiful in the beginning of setting a lot of things up. Mm-hmm. But then it's this show that whenever you sort of challenge it to do real character drama rather than just sort of having yeah, the basic that setup. Yeah. My, my like chief issue with it is the fact that like we never like, each of the characters is like is you know completes by the end of the season their transformation into a symbol like uh you know henry is an engineer that uh like is and that was like you know part of the history of like part of the great migration is like the billion the multi-billion dollar war contracts that bought more engineers out west and and he is uh he represents ambition or like uh the kind of i mean like henry is just black man struggles 
and uh, Lucky is, um, you know, black motherhood struggles. Gracie is uh, the is is the the like represents black children that never get to have a childhood. Ruby uh, represents the self hatred that you learn in predominantly white spaces, and like there's it's like you never really get to know much of these characters much about these characters i think we're on the same page here like to me the the problem this show we we will illuminate right is that every character on this show is a race puppet and in a way look if we were watching a movie that might be one thing Mm -hmm. you might be able to work on the level of allegory it's tough though when you're like we're gonna do 10 10 episodes hour-long episodes yeah well, it's, I mean, it's like 30 to their variable length, too, in a weird way, right? So it's like 30 minutes or 50 minutes, depending on what mood this, this team is in. Yeah. But yeah, it's it's when you do 10 episodes, 30 to 45 minutes, and, you're, and all of your characters are just race puppets, you just sort of like somebody needed to write real character development. And that just never happens in this show. Everyone sort of operates... At the level of being a character in Crash, <laughs> labor. But I finally, after talking about Crash on this podcast so many times, I wrote a piece for The Ringer last week. Please go read it. Basically being like every every race film or race TV show that I don't like is basically just Crash. Um, and yeah, it's everybody is exactly that poorly fleshed out, right? And I think that that's even more true of the white characters in the show, right? Because they only ever exist as that chorus. They never exist as... The show makes one, I think, botched attempt to develop a white character. But otherwise, it this is a show full of race puppets in a really frustrating way. But let's get into it. Micah, how do we want to work through this? We can just go through episodes. You know, I don't think that we should actually go episode by episode because then our listeners will be pulling their hair out. But I think that you can capably divide this show up like by like episodes one through four, which is like the table setting. And then there is episode five, uh, which, you know, is uh, if you have friends that have watched the show, that probably is the episode that they told you about. And then there is like kind of the denouement, and then the final two episodes where everything actually starts to make sense. Yo, the final two episodes is when this show tries to become anime out of nowhere. And I actually. Oh my God. It, especially, <laughs> especially the penultimate episode that tries to be like a full metal alchemist arc for uh, no reason. Anyway, um, can we, the table setting specifically, can we talk about this? Cause it's the thing I think this show really fucks up, to put it gently. Yeah. Um, because here's the problem, right? We talked about it being a kind of divided narrative, present day in Compton, flashbacks to North Carolina. This Mm -hmm. this black family has been driven out of North Carolina. Something clearly, you know, in the beginning of the show, basically, you have Lucky home alone with, um, well, not home alone, but Lucky home with her newborn son, Chester, right? Who is conspicuously absent in the move to California. But there's this like crazy old white lady comes up to the house, starts talking nonsense, is like, can I have your baby? And she she starts singing old black Joe. Right. Um, and that's all we know in the beginning about what happened in North Carolina, right? But this family, they get to California. And when they settle into the house, right, it's, it's very clear the white people want to drive them out. They're masked outside of the house singing racist stuff. 
you know, pretending that they're doing welcoming committee stuff, but they're clearly trying to drive this black family out of the neighborhood. And meanwhile, right, you have Lucky and, and Henry. They they sort of hunkered down inside and they got a gun and they're just sort of passing this gun back and forth between each other. Like, yo, this is our last day. We going for this. And there's a weird bravado to them in the setup, right? Of the setup of the, the it white It seems like vaguely Bonnie and Clyde-ish, you know? The problem, though, is that they have kids. And, like, <laughs> exactly. nothing in the beginning of the show makes sense to me because it's... You've, you've, you have, as the writers of the show, you've given these two parents, you've given them kids. And I just think for the first couple episodes of the show, literally nothing they do or say from the moment that they... they they sign the deed from the moment they get the house, the moment they start pulling their gun out and being like, we're going to, we're going to, they'll never take fight. from us again. Yeah. It's- yeah. And it's like, you have kids. Like, are you Like, you don't have to live in this particular, you know what I mean? I, I get the idea that we're talking about the adversity of integration and that it's not the sort of thing that you say, well, why would you want to just, you know, why don't the black people go? Look? I'm not trying to say that, but what I'm saying is that, it's it, there's a weird tension in the fact that they present them in this this Bonnie and Clyde way, despite the fact that they are clearly they have kids in the house. The idea that these two people would think nothing of being like, we're going to have a shootout in this neighborhood where we're clearly outnumbered and we don't know anybody. Also, we have two kids and we just lost a kid doesn't make any sense. And but it but the thing the narrative does, I think, is they try to say well, you don't really know what happened in North Carolina yet. So they kind of string you along and kind of make you expect the show to ultimately make this dissonance make sense. And spoiler is that they never do that. And in fact, they only make it make less sense with each passing episode (laughs) that these two characters are behaving in this way. Yeah, it's like never really fully examined why East Compton. It's just kind of like that would be the best thing for the narrative, despite, you know, the obvious the obvious reason of like, you know, the job. But, you know, you're commuting there anyway, so you could commute from downtown Los Angeles where all the black people live. it's it's kind of like a it's that they're already before the show even starts they're just doing things because the plot tells them to like it's like it's not anything none of this seems to be happening of their own volition yeah yes that is very much the case they they feel like they are being pushed by writers into a scenario especially because like the more you learn about the more you focus on the fact that they have been violently driven out of North Carolina. The fearfulness that leads them to leave North Carolina feels totally at odds with the bravado that leads them to decide that they're going to fight their neighbors to the last man. It just doesn't make sense, man. Like it, it never adds up. And the show is so flagrant about its unwillingness to make it add up. <laughs> And I will, that to me is just the thing I really got hung up with. I think there's even... just, you know, I, I know exactly like the, the, the air of what you're talking about is what makes like the moments where the show feels kind of anachronistic where like they have like very shareable clips, you know, for instance, lucky walking out and backhanding Betty across the face. Yo, that was a group. That was, a that was it's, but no. it's like, no, but they're, they're like, they're, they obviously they're, these are fantastic moments. Like, I mean, and even like, I'm, 
I'm not going to lie to you. Like, I kind of jumped a little bit when when Henry finally shot the sergeant. It's just like, you know, bad things happen when you get in other people's business, even though, you know, he just shoots a cop and that's just never, it doesn't come back on him at all. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which is... It's like, it's like, it's cyberpunk 2077 logic of cop killing, where it's just like... It's, no, nobody, nobody Henry, was around, so Henry therefore... shoots the sergeant and then he runs three blocks and the police stars go from five stars to zero stars <laughs> and it's fine. Yeah, it's just like, you know, it's nobody, there weren't any patrolmen on foot, no cars around, there were no witnesses, so he could just drive three blocks to his house and be fine. <laughs> yes. Oh, who did this? I don't know. Um, yeah, that, but that, <laughs> I'm so upset. Like so much of that that happens, though, right? I think that's that becomes my problem with the show is that issues are raised in ways that feel very thoughtful and feel very like okay, there's a narrative design to this show, but then it just drops stuff. If this show drops plot threads like nobody's business. It is. I like I th- I think and I think I texted you about this is that like I wanted to be impressed by like the in the very like at the beginning of the show when they first set up uh when they're first setting up like what Lucky's relationship is like with her daughters like she's talking to Gracie yeah. and she's just like I used to be a teacher I'm like I got the best student in the world so on and so forth and then Gracie leaps off the bed and she's like let me show you something I learned at school and she starts stomping and like reciting the lyrics to old black Joe. And like, as long, like the longer she goes on, her eyes get wider and her voice gets weirder. And it's all, and it's like very, it's like demonic. And it's, and I was just like, Oh, that's like an interesting way of kind of making the way that kind of white supremacy, like ekes its way into your household, like kind of surreal in a way that feel that felt kind of like poignant. I was like, that's kind of smart the way that they're doing that. But then I, I just never felt like it was that smart again. <laughs> yeah. You know what it made me think of? There was this moment in, it had to be elementary school, right? Keep in mind, I went to school in, in um, central Virginia and I remember, what was it? You know, obviously Virginia, you studied the civil war and you have like, you have teachers who are weird about that stuff. And I remember we were doing some like costume thing and I didn't really want to do it. And I was like, I, I remember I had to go through and pick like somebody from history to be, to be like to dress up as or like make a costume for. And I picked this like Confederate general. And my mom was like, nah. And like at the time <laughs> I didn't get it, but it's like, it feels like that was sort of the energy of that moment. Right. Of her coming home and singing the song mm-hmm. and her mom being like, Girl, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and it's that kind of smart, right? Like it's that kind of. I agree with you that it's smart in that way. Although I think the show itself is more so trying to sell you on that moment by, like you mentioned, how it's styled. Mm-hmm. You know, the warp of her her voice and just the the colors and lighting. Yeah, the of that wash scene. of red color. Yeah, and that's almost that's almost the show's bit, frankly. Where it takes every single moment and uses um, music and color yeah. to like to heighten the just to tell you that something is wrong here. Like there's no like, stillness in it, really. Yeah, there's no yeah. stillness in it. Like it doesn't build suspense in that way. So the jump scares don't really work. Yeah, that's the thing. It's so it's stylish. It is stylish to a fault because 
I mean, it's impossible to look at the show and not at least be like, it looks polished, right? Um, yeah, I mean, like the like the costuming is brilliant. The framing is like exactly what you would expect from like a like uh you know this an entry into the social horror genre. Like a lot of tight frames on like terrified faces and like it's it is it's it's well made, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's good. <laughs> yeah. What else have we not, I mean, presented about the family yet in this setup? I think that that's basically it, right? Like, the sort of, I mean, we could explain the white characters a bit. Because Allison Pill is basically the, she ends up being the lead of the effort to get these Negroes out of Compton, right? Yeah. She is just. She's at, like. She's like and, a bored housewife. She has all the time in the world. Yeah, always always ready to yell at a caterer like it's just the face like the, <laughs> like the way that she has like allison pill's face is absolutely perfect for that role because her of makeup is perfect too it's like, absolutely she's perfect. styled so well yeah yeah because she like it's like her eyes are wide open all of the time <laughs> <laughs> and this and her smile just like is so uncomfortable it's amazing like it's it but yeah like and then they do she has she goes at like getting the Emery's out of East Compton with such an like such unhinged like dedication that you're like, where is this coming from? And the show doesn't the show doesn't can't resist like giving her a reason beyond just being white and having and this being her neighborhood. Uh because um they they there's this there's this one uncomfortable scene where they suggest that she was uh like abused as a child when she goes home to see her parents yeah so remember remember earlier in this conversation when i was complaining that all these people are race puppets and they they there's no real character development in this show mm -hmm. well then the problem becomes that allison pill betty right betty wendell is the one character in this show where they try to give her real character development so they give her the milkman who comes over and is clearly like banging her while her husband's at work. They give her the, you know, she goes home to her rich parents and there are the weird undertones about why she doesn't like going home to visit her parents and see her father. And she hasn't been home in seven years. They She's give her a best home. friend. They give her a best friend, yep. Midge, who leaves her in the lurch, you know, to yep. deal with these niggas that just moved in across the street. Right, right. And it's they're doing all of these things where you're like, okay, well, this is stuff that, especially the family stuff with her and the milkman stuff. It's like, okay, this is some character definition that isn't just racist white people bad, right? And none of it goes anywhere or feels like it fits together is the weird thing, right? It feels like they face plant so hard with the Betty character once they try to do it's almost like they realize that. Listen, all of these characters are kind of made of cardboard. We at least have to take the most sort of standout performance. You know, the, you have to take the actor who is doing the most in this and try to build a character for real around her. And they face plant so hard that I did find myself going, you know what? Yeah, they should have just kept it simple. They should have just had her be monomaniacally racist they should have let her be javert you know what i mean <laughs> like just let her be javert because you tried you tried to make her into a real character and 
it's just so all over the place and does not work. And even, yeah, I'm doing a lot of ranting. I'm sorry. Th- this show is frustrating on a lot of levels. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think that that like kind of take cares of the of the awkward, you know, two butter knives table setting of the show. Uh, but then we come to episode five and we learn what actually happened in North Carolina. Yeah. Um, you describe it. I mean, man. Okay. So there, when the, the crazy white lady and her. Okay. So the, the crazy white lady and I want to say that those are her sons. Uh, or I don't know, just three other large, oafish, ugly-looking white men barge into, um, barge into Lucky's home. She locks Chester in a cupboard and tries to hide, but they find her and the baby. And it's a very, like, it's not like it's it's a it's a very like unflinching scene where they depict. Lucky's rape, and also they put Chester in a pillow in a pillowcase and swing him around and hit him on bookcases and walls and stuff until he's dead. And it is difficult to stomach, but like I didn't, and I mean, like it could just be because I'm dead inside and possibly like you know desensitized, but I don't think that it was gratuitous because you actually have like a lot of cuts, so you kept. You have some cuts away from like what would have been like yeah. going too far, you know? Yeah, that is true. The way, yes. I, I felt like it was at best hacky and distasteful. Yes. Like the idea of it being like, yeah, there is a gang rape attended by throwing a kid throwing around. Throwing a kid around. It just felt it's, like some edgelord shit. Like it does, it just like feels purely for shock value and kind of keeps the thing like my issue with it is like just kind of like the continued over the top racist caricatures of like of 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 white people that you know if the shows if the purpose of the show is to teach people or something or to to make them think or examine themselves then they can I'd like any white person watching this can can well not any but most could probably distance themselves from that yeah i mean i don't even think you have to ascribe it that that sort of pedantic intent right i just think that the problem is there's clearly with a show like this there's a racial there's a racist inflation problem right which is in california which is again theoretically the more subtle, more pernicious racism. If you've made it so that even out in Compton, California, all the white people are just screaming the N-word and burning the N-word into people's lawns, every single one of them is unambiguously racist, then what do you have to do back in North Carolina? Well, you have to have a gang rape and a baby in a pillowcase because that, you know what I mean? You've created that inflation problem That's actually a really good point. That's a really good point. Um, that's what it feels like. It feels like the show painted itself into that corner. Yeah. yeah. What could be worse than hanging Sambo dolls and, and burning nigger heaven into somebody's front yard? Right, right. Yeah. But that feels like a bad writing problem more than, you know what I mean? I just yeah. didn't, um, 
But yeah, I'm I'm with you that I think that at least the way it's shot, the way it's presented feels like it it tries to avoid going too far. I I don't know. What do you think about the general criticism of this? I think even beyond just that one scene, I think there are people who watch this show and their sense is, oh, there's just so much racism and so much suffering in this show. And it's one thing to have anti-racist convictions or whatever, but this show is just so dark. And yeah. Well, the thing is that I think my, well, say if you were going to be writing about this, and you get to the end of it and you have like basically all the issues that we are just now talking about of like the the racial inflation and the kind of um writing eating its own tail etc then it's just kind of like i feel like what we're reading a lot of it is just like an exhaustion with like this type of show that doesn't have anything new to say um and doesn't have anything in like that doesn't have any like distinct personality of its own. Yeah. So it's like I mean, like it's not difficult to make the leap to this is irresponsible if it doesn't mean anything, you know, in the long run. Okay, but then to me that begs the question: does do you think if this show came out three years earlier, you'd be warmer on it? Like this, if the show came out in this exact form three years earlier. Well, uh, this show came out three years earlier i wouldn't have binge watched all of the hitchcock films and watched night of the living dead after seeing get out to like you know ruin the experience for myself <laughs> that's fair uh i didn't watch all the hitchcock films and i still think i'm in the same headspace as you are um it's funny because i i just introduced the idea of of racist inflation but in that sort of stands at odds with my general point which is Apart from the distinct scene, right? Mm -hmm. I just, because of how arch all the racist neighborhood association white people are in the Compton half of the show, mm -hmm. I just got a sense of like, this is, this is, why are you even bothering to use the second great migration and this bi-coastal narrative device as your thing? If you aren't going to seem like you've thought at all, really, about the distinctions between Southern racism and California racism, you know what I mean? It just it mm -hmm. felt so like if you wanted to, I don't know, it, it just felt so weird that they went out of their way to be accountable for that kind of nuance and then just didn't bother. Yeah, but I mean, then like... That's just like a sh something that the show does up and down. Like, for instance, I bet you forgot that Henry was part of the Tuskegee experiments. They just kind of left that out. Like, I mean, it, besides there being a couple, like one, uh, one or two, was it one or two visions yeah. of like the, the mustard I, gas thing that he I has? I remember one, yeah. 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 He's with Isaiah Bradley from Falcon and Winter Soldier. It is exactly. all, all them together. Um, yeah, man, can we talk about Henry a bit and his his friend? <laughs> Henry and the, the tap dancing man. The can we, okay, can we establish now we're at the midway point? So basically what happens, this is very video game logic, which is that all four members of the black family 
get assigned a kind of boss, right? Who's their yeah? They psyche. get their own specter. Yeah, they get yeah. their they get their each each member of the family gets their own specter. Uh, Gracie has Miss Vera. Um, Ruby Luce, has Doris. Ruby has Doris. Uh, like uh, blonde hair, blue eyed, uh, cheer girl in the cheerleading squad at school. Yeah. Lucy has uh, the man in the black hat, which is I didn't it didn't click for me that Christopher Herodal, uh was the man in the black hat who also plays a similar character in Hell on Wheels called the Swede, uh, but he's actually canonically from Norway <laughs> in that show, um, and he is like, and then there's and then Gracie Gracie has Miss Vera, um, a big tall bony exangrenated looking old white lady uh yeah but henry has the tap dance man <laughs> I, yeah i don't i don't know that i got i think of all four of them i really didn't get the point of the tap dance man because and this sort of gets at how genericized uh them is about everything it sort of says okay henry you know engineer black man trying to do right by his family etc cetera, etc cetera. his specter is just gonna be minstrel actor a minstrel well the thing okay this is the like the logic of the character is yes henry is a black man trying to provide for his family working in a job that he know pays well but also that he hates and that his 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 and like there's also the yeah supervisors it's like kind of the literal manifestation of all the humiliation you face being a black professional. Like sure. Or just a black man in America. And that's like what the but I mean like but the but the, tap, <laughs> the character is just so out there. Like uh And it's also it's so out there, but it's also it just feels so hacky. It's just like that yeah, of course. Of course one of them is a menstrual sure. You yeah, know, it just feels very exactly. sure. Exactly. Okay, yeah, it's fine. just like yeah, sure. it does feel very sure. And it's also <laughs> because of because of the way that like the and the tab dancing man is played by Jeremiah Blackett. Like his cadence and like the weight and the just like the graveliness of his voice and like how long his speaking parts go yeah. on. <laughs> they really do. <laughs> He think he's a joker. Oh my he god! Just like, yeah, it's just kind of like if that was me, I would have. You wouldn't have done a goddamn Damn. thing. Yo, yeah, he doesn't. Nigga, sit that. your ass down before I kill you. The yeah. only the great moments with the tap dance man are the ones when he snaps on him. And he's yeah, he's like, yes, you you wouldn't have done a you wouldn't have done thing. a goddamn thing. Yeah, this like it's those are the like I was I was cackling at like at that moment, but yeah. I think I like, but yeah, I was texting you about how I like the way that Ashley Thomas does. That's Henry, right? Yeah, that play who plays Henry. He like does, like his acting is also physical. Yeah, in that like every time he, because I mean, like, there's a lot of instances where he gets, I mean, punished for absolutely no reason on the job. Uh, you know, left excluded, degraded. Humili- he's being humiliated. Yeah, just, yeah, 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 yeah. But like, he has to because he needs the he needs to keep the job. Like, kind of just swallow it and keep walking. But each time he leaves the manager's office, 
he like his shoulders like I, I think he raises his shoulders a little bit and it seems like he gets physically shorter like the yeah. more he goes into work i agree with you yeah uh, i think that i think some of the work stuff is pretty good right but maybe it's just because I, at least the work scenes at least when dude goes to work i'm being relieved from the neighborhood dynamics which just feel after a point so well worn you know mm-hmm. yeah whereas the work stuff feels so sparse as to feel fresh throughout the show i think yeah um although i don't think that about the school i think the school just never feels like a real school the school feels like it only has two students doris and ruby yeah well, do, well it's except for except for the very first scene when ruby walks into the school and all of the white kids are looking at her as she walks in and then the school only actually has three rooms which is ruby's homeroom the principal <laughs> office and the yeah. basement <laughs> yeah yes um yeah that basement is huge it's <laughs> a giant basement. basement yeah um i don't know so by so where are we we're like through the middle of the show i mean we're working through in broad strokes because one thing i'll say is that like i i don't know that we're really even passing over that much i think this show really with the neighborhood stuff is so tedious um i don't know that we're sort of maybe glossing over the individual male neighbors because i know the men are emasculated after a point by Betty, right? Because Betty mm-hmm. gives a speech at one point. She she doesn't just give a speech. She cuts off this white man's speech at the neighborhood meeting. She's Marty. like, y'all not about this. She's like, y'all kind of want to get the black people out the neighborhood. I'm ready to die over this, you know? And then from that point on, there is some interesting stuff with the, the white men in the neighborhood where they end up clamoring over each other to prove that they're willing to do the most. Mm-hmm. they're willing to take the biggest risk they're willing to go to jail to like threaten intimidate beat maim possibly kill this black family to get rid of this problem but like even that stuff ends up that that stuff just feels like it ends up rubbing in your face how much the show did not think that deeply about Again, the kind of racism they wanted to depict. Yeah, because uh, a thing, they all become a thing rednecks. About, it's yeah, like it's exactly, the exactly, by the exactly. End. But like, it's like it, they, it's like they almost want to like have these characters be distinct and have names, but they end up forming the same, like this one. It's the same. It's it becomes the same problem that you have with Lovecraft Country, where the white characters just kind of form this one blob this one racist mass what are you doing there boy you know what i mean yeah it's the problem of like you could be lovecraft country has the problem where you could be looking at a racist cop in the south or a racist cop in massachusetts and they both do the what are you doing out this time of night boy and it's just like what's the point of having distinct locations if you're just going to make all of these characters a single cartoon yeah right um it bugged me so much by the second half because the violence, you know, the, the violence escalates so much. That, that I was like, that I was saying to myself, somebody just, somebody needs to kill Marty. Like now. It's gotta, <laughs> yeah. like, it needs, like it needs to be over. Like, <laughs> Yeah. And, you, and then it's also, the show is just never, even as you learned why they left North Carolina, it never outruns the initial question of like, yo, these people are parents. Like you've had like, People getting killed with axes in this house. 
people getting knife wounds, people hiding guns. And it's just like, if if this is the show you wanted to make, I don't understand why they didn't just make Lucky and Henry childless. Like, they should have just had it be that Chester was their only child. Chester is killed by the white people in North Carolina, and they are making their last stand as childless parents who have nothing else to lose. But once, like, all of the escalating violence in the second half of the show, you're just like, dog, there are kids in here. This doesn't make any sense. And the thing is that, like, that does, like, waste good performances from Shahidi Wright and uh, Melanie Hurd, who play play, uh, Ruby and Gracie, respectively. It does waste because to me, because it doesn't make sense in the narrative itself, I just sort of kept telling myself by the end, like, these kids are in here for the same reason Chester was in here, right? Because kids equal pathos, right? It's mm-hmm. it's kind of just a cheap move to be like, if we put kids in, it raises the stakes, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, it does, but it also makes it so that n- none of the character drama of this series makes any sense. Um. We can get toward the end of the season here. Can we can we just talk about the the origin story? Edelon, <sighs> the penultimate episode, which purports to reveal the impetus. Because all of the you've got two levels of this show, right? You have the the literal threat posed by the racist white neighbors. Um, but also on top of that, you have supernatural metaphysical threat posed by the more hallucinatory incarnations of racism, you know, like the tap dance man, like all of the specters, you know, these things are kind of apparitions. They're the things that make this a, not just the racial, the things that follow you home after you leave, uh, you know, work or the hardware store, you know, that it's just, right. Yeah. But it's it's the penultimate episode of the season purports to explain why why all of this has to be supernatural. Um, and it's this it's this frontier flashback pioneer episode about in black and white. Yeah, black and white. The man in the black hat back in the day, right? Is it he's he's basically like a traveling Preacher. Uh, yeah, it's like he is uh like has created a well settled like a kind of Christian community uh out west. Um he and uh his countrymen. And uh like the the pastor basically is a long story short a Pharisee. He, you know, is he thinks that God talks only to him and that creates tension amongst the community. But, you know, like still they exalt him as the leader. And um, what he does is like how the how the story starts in earnest is he comes across this uh, black couple whose wagon is broken down outside of outside of town. And he brings them back and he says, I'll fix your wagon wheel. You're welcome to stay with me. You'll be my guests. And they obviously are like, uh, but you're white. And, you know, we kind of, the, 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 the implied, the thing that's implied there is that they have escaped slavery and that they are, you know, really not trying to be caught and sent back. And yeah. so 
But they 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 join this community. They live there, and things go horribly awry. The pastor the pastor uh, has lost his wife and son, um, and is basically wandering. Yeah, I mean, like his. This is his like wandering his spiritual desert, like cursing God and like, why did you take from me? And I would do anything if I could just have my son back. One day comes across this boy that's just lying like underneath some tumbleweeds or a bush. I don't even remember what it is, but he's just like, oh, a sign from God. This is my son now. But the kid never really talks and just kind of like mm-hmm. is around, you know, and with like an eerily calm face all the time. And the kid is always at the pastor's side uh, when he is, you know, consulting his Lord, when he's talking to his fellow um, pilgrims, whatever the fuck you want to call them. He's just kind of like always there. And honestly, what you come to understand is that the kid is actually the pastor's specter. Um, but that doesn't really come to light until the very end of the episode. I feel like the main, can we just say the main thrust, the, the, the main thrust of this, the, the penultimate episode, right? Is that Satan is racist. And yeah. It's, it's, because like the, the reason this, okay. So the reason this season is subtitled covenant, right? Is like earlier on when they're signing the deed to the house, you know, Henry notices there's a racial covenant, you know, there's no Negro, don't sell his house to no black people. And uh, the real estate agent's like, oh, ignore that. Those have been invalidated. You're free to move in. And this comes back to bite them in the ass because that covenant is sort of a metaphor for the more broadly satanic supernatural covenant that basically means that if, you know, it basically curses the land itself. And, you know, it's basically the wager of the man of the black hat soul saying, look, your soul is forfeit if any black people ever move onto this land ever again. And that is sort of the origination of why things get so violent and weird once the Emery's move in to Compton. Right. Um, It's very... Okay, it's very monster. It's very Full Metal Alchemist. It's very, it's very Persona, right? Like, it's not enough to have your story culminate in, you know, corrupt adults, you know, perverted by the biases and hatreds of of the human spirit. It's like also actually they were all being manipulated by Satan, <laughs> and now you have to kill God. Now you, you know have to I mean? kill God. Yeah, it's not. Like you, it's not just you have to defeat, you have to overcome racism. It's it's P.S. You must also yeah. kill God. <laughs> it's like, what, uh, bro? Yeah. I yeah. kind of respect it's I, I felt a, a contradiction because I actually think the episode's very boring. I really hate the pacing of it. But it I does think it go is, on forever despite being one of the shorter episodes. Yeah. I also wish the idea had been introduced a little sooner because I it maybe would have rejuvenated my interest in the show. Yeah. If it hadn't been the penultimate episode. Because I actually think on paper, that's kind of tight. Satan is racist is kind of a tight. Like, I sure, we would love like, to see yeah, that. It, yeah, yeah. We would love to see that, wouldn't we, Jackie? The thing is that like if it did come if it did come earlier in the season, 
like rather than there being this sort of nebulous association between the like the 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 road historical facts of the second great great migration and like the racial trauma that these people just like you know suffered and the supernatural elements that just kind of pop up here and there and it feels like very disjointed until it you know coalesces in the ninth episode when there are only 10 episodes of the season well you say disjointed and maybe i mean the thing i think of is that it just feels so much like you're being served up a shoney's buffet of cliches and then you get to that penultimate episode and the show's take is that satan is racist and you're like well th- this is at least this is a at least a good idea that feels like the show's own idea Mm-hmm. And you kind of just wish it hadn't been preceded by a lot of really hacky jump scares and homages to the ring. You know what I mean? It's just yeah. like, it's like, oh, you buried your one sort of worthwhile quasi original idea. You buried it in episode nine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then the final episode is very like, that's what it, that also it's very anime because it's just a bunch of final boss fights. Exactly. The final episode is like each of the Emberies taking down uh either alone or in teams. They're they they're, they're respective Spectre. Yeah, they gotta they fight, gotta Sephiroth. fight Sephiroth, Sephiroth. They gotta fight Sephiroth. Uh they gotta fight Sephiroth. Um and you know, of course, because I mean, they've been shooting guns and swinging axes in their house. They're the, they're the cops are outside at the very end, so we get like the 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 same sort of night of the living dead uh, conclusion, you know, like where Ben in that movie, like Ben emerges from like the cellar, and the people that have come to clean out the ghouls are just kind of like, oh, there's another one. They shoot him and toss him on the pile and burn him too. Which is probably what happens at the end of the show, despite there being the really powerful image of the Emery's standing together, locking arms with this with with steeled faces against, you know, the cops with raised guns and again the white Greek chorus. Yes. Since you've mentioned the cops and their sort of role in the end where they're just standing with guns outside the house. Can we, one thing I, I thought was also not well done is the cops in the show, right? Because you basically have, in the beginning with the first conflict between the Emery's and the neighbors, the cops show up. You have these two young white cops burst in the house like, oh, these Negroes, like, y'all up to no good. And then you have their superior come into the house. And he's sort of weirdly, you think in the beginning, like, oh, this guy is sensible. Like, he's not saying racist shit to them. He's just telling his men to stand down. What's his deal, right? And then the show, the show kind of tries to pull together a narrative thread with the real estate agent who sold the black family the house, the good senior white cop, who's the one that ultimately gets shot by Henry, Henry, but like the good white cop, the real estate agent, and then the men who employ the real estate agent, right? The show has- yeah. The banks, right. And- they have this one, it feels like it's the only five minutes of the show that's actually dedicated to explaining the second great migration. And I did not think that scene was well done. Where it it's was trying to explain so... why the cops had an interest in actually protecting the black family or at least pretending to protect the black family. 
Yeah, which is like basically so that the banks could loan them like the minimum amount of money at the highest possible interest rate to keep them poor for 30 years. Um, yes. And uh, the, yeah, the scene is like very quick fire and like there are a lot of graphics and it's too fast, honestly. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's the speed, it's the speed that that scene could get away with being if this were a 90 minute movie. Right, right. But instead it's just like, oh, you're really trying to pack in to five minutes your explanation of what is basically pretty central to the tension of this show. And it just, it feels so disproportionately undercooked. You know what it, you know what it, like I was thinking about when I was watching that scene, I was just kind of like thinking about the, the monologue at the, like at, in, at right before the conclusion of uh, us, you know, right before the final showdown. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that explains the whole movie. And it's, I mean, like it is, it feels right. It feels rushed and yes, undercooked. And I think that might be one thing. Like, I don't know. I think if you pitch me racism, horror anthology, TV series about second great migration, I think two things. Like I either think, okay, you actually want to do, I hate sounding jargony, but like you want to do a narrative that is, dare I say, systemic. Right. In which case, the show just does not, it has five minutes worth of systemic critique. And then the rest of it is, is character level stuff. It's racism as personal prejudice, as opposed to racism as structure, which could be fine. If there was the any exploration so of the characters. Characters, yeah. yeah it's right. So that's the thing. It feels like the worst of both worlds. It both, yeah. it, on a it's systemic rather, level, it has. Rather than a, like, rather than a genre show that's exploring. Uh, that that's exploring um, race. It's like it just feels like the opposite. It just like it feels it feels as though it's a genre show that just is using race because it's there. <laughs> I agree. Can we talk about that? I don't know that impulse in general. Like let's sort of. I think we both would could dunk on this movie all day, but I think maybe talking about that tendency in general, right? Using race because it's there. I I think that's interesting. I, I know that I'm about to hear about how everything has crashed, so let's just go ahead and start with that. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. There is one criticism of Crash that I'm not the biggest fan of, which is that 
I think there's an angle on that movie that says the problem with it is it absolves too many of its characters, right? Mm-hmm. Like the Matt Dillon character who sexually assaults Christine and profiles Cameron in that movie, but then is absolved because he rescues, you know, supposedly absolved because he rescues Christine from the car crash or like the awkward scene of, of Sandra Bullock hugging her housekeeper, right? There are those moments <laughs> yeah. of absolute, it's after, like racist characters. After barring up uh, Michael Pena, who's fixing the locks on her house, the most, the cutest man alive. Yes. Them cheeks. And then she has the nerve to the insult nerve. him to his face. Because he got some tats. I can't believe Because he's got some tats and his head is shaved. But I think some people look at that movie and go, the problem is that it just, it absolves these racist white characters. I don't think that's the problem with Crash. The problem with Crash is that everybody in that character is just a sock puppet. They're just a race puppet. They represent a really... It, it is bizarre that one could want to make a movie about uh, illuminating sort of under-discussed, underrated tensions in, uh, you know, r- you know, racial disparities in a in a but liberal then, bastion. But then like, use the the like the most obvious like yeah. low hanging yes insults for like I mean it's just kind of like it's 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 yeah it just <laughs> it's like you listen to Paul Haggis talk about that movie and he ha- you can tell he's sort of thinking like. I see all this stuff and I'm Canadian and maybe I I just don't take it for granted the way that Americans do, but I see all these little things. But then his movie, you watch his movie and it has the moral event horizon of veggie tales, right? <laughs> and and to me, that's the problem with Crash. And like this goddamn show, them, right? I think in general, in in what we will call, I guess, racial entertainment, you know, there is a real problem to me of shows that I don't actually think have interesting ideas about race or racism and are only capable capable of operating at the level of incorporating race into a character drama because race is there. And then their sense of what racism is, is, is kind of like generic hatred generic obsessive hatred yeah so like and i'm like i'm I'm glad you brought that up because i was recently watched um hell or high water have you seen that i haven't um it's a like it's a it's a 2016 heist film uh with uh ben foster chris pine and jeff bridges but it's actually a movie about um two brothers reconciling but it's actually a movie about debt relief in west texas um and I mean, just living in West Texas. And there's one brown character, like in the in the whole movie, but like the relationship between him and Jeff Bridges' character is like a like a kind of like an honest depiction of like what like what that sort of racism would be like. It's like cause Jeff Bridges is teasing and the 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 other character like hates it. But also, like, there's not anything that he can do about it because they work together and he knows that, like, that's the very best that he can do. And it's, like, not overtly, like, it's not, it's not overt hatred. It's just, and it's not, like, a kind of prejudice that he's trading on. It's just kind of, you know, the way that he thinks about these other people. All Mexicans play soccer and, you know, all Native Americans drink 
And I mean, like, it's it's very you see that Jeff Bridges' character is like really smart and how he does his job, but very dumb and how he goes about his life. And you don't really love him or hate him by the end of the movie. And that feels like more honest than any of the racial depictions that I've seen in any of these shows or movies. But it's it sounds more honest, but also sounds more interesting. I think that's my frustration, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Racial, racial prejudice, as it actually, in terms of the actual nuances of it and the actual uh, variability of it, is fascinating. The fact that I could go, like, the fact that you can go to all your little different corners of the United States and experience, and experience racism a to total different degrees. Different brand. Yeah. It's like, yeah, it, it's like, that's fascinating. And to me, the offense is when you make, you sort of take race because it's just there, right? But then you kind of sap it of all of its dramatic power and potential when used in fiction by turning it into this weird cardboard version of itself that's way less interesting than if you actually tried to take a nuanced modulated approach to it that's the big crime of them to me and and also having established that like you know that racism is the same everywhere what is the point of there being other like other entries into this anthology series Yes, or what was the point of them going to California? You know yeah. what I mean? Like, yeah. I think that was the betrayal to me, right, is once you have those people settle into the house, waving guns, being like, we're going to shoot all these white people, we are not budging. To me, at that point, the logic of the whole show breaks down because it's, okay, you're just going to depict California and North Carolina is more or less the same place. Racism is everywhere, you know, Okay, then why did they why didn't they just stay in the house in North Carolina and say we're going to hunt down these white people who took our kid? You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like if when you overburden yourself with this like cartoonish simplistic blunt force version of racism, it just messes up your own narrative for reasons like that, right? It not, none of their decisions make any sense because the show has no capacity to be smart about the thing that it is using as its central dramatic tension. And it's so infuriating. And I think I said this, like, uh, I forget what episode we were talking about. You know, it's bad writing happens, right? Mm-hmm. But there's bad writing and then there's bad writing about race. And, <laughs> and bad writing bad about writing race about just race hurts. Is worse. Yeah, yeah, it just hurts. It, it's like, I can forgive bad writing because I do bad writing. You know what I mean? Like, fuck that. But like, when you do bad writing about race, I'm going to take it a little bit more personally. And that's the thing about this show, man. It's just, I take it kind of personally that you could, that somebody that like, to think there was a naive time 15 years ago where I could, I could maybe tell myself that, oh man, only white people don't get race. Only Paul Haggis doesn't get it. (laughs) And then you fast forward to now and you watch them and it's like, damn, even Lena Waithe does not get that like, Racism is not this Halloween costume that you put on (laughs) and you just you out of nowhere develop like a Tallahassee accent and start calling everybody boy. That's just not what it is, bro. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, It's frustrating. It's it feels like a very Twitter brained show. I don't know, man. It's just. like Yeah, I mean, like from. Yes, yes. From its 
realizations to again the shareable moments in it it feels like a it feels like a very twitter show um i don't know do you want to is there any are there any salves to watching this i don't I, it's funny because i sound exasperated now now that i've really dwelled on the faults but i i think i I, I don't dislike the show nearly as much as other people I know dislike the show. <laughs> but I do, I you know, we do like to at least offer alternatives or some notes of positivity, even in episodes where we're sort of just dunking on something. Is there anything, you said Hell or High Water, is there anything else that comes to mind that you might recommend people watch or listen to or read instead of them? Hmm. Let's see. Um, doesn't even have to be new. I don't know. It's just... I'll tell you what, I'll go first. Can I go first? I'll just say, go watch Crash. Like, I rewatched it so I could write about it for The Ringer. And I, you know, one illuminating thing is that I actually did not hate the movie as much as I thought I would. I still think all of the, the you know, all of the galaxy brain race stuff in that movie is bad. I do think that it also just has a lot of tonal problems and a lot of its cast is too big, but ludicrous, legitimately charming in that movie movie in a way that feels worth preserving because ludicrous is terrible in every other film or TV <laughs> every role he has movie. ever had. Well, I don't wait, wait, know wait, how his performance actually, in Crash is so good. Actually, his the the brief performance or the the small role that he has in Rock and Roll is also pretty funny because um, okay. he he plays a. Uh, uh, Johnny Quid's former manager. <laughs> um, but anyway, yes. Uh, watch Ludacris rewatch like, Crash. Rewatch Crash. Um, you should watch Hell or High Water. Um, I mean, like, are we sticking with like the? Are we, st- are we sticking with? Man, just start recommending anime at this point. I, I mean, don't know. I mean, like, I honestly <laughs> don't know. Much Kaisen. <laughs> we were talking about. You still haven't watched that. You got you got some catching up to do. You got to watch Demon Slayer and Jujutsu Kaisen. I think that. Oh, Megalobox season two, Nomad is is uh, very good. Uh, if you uh, enjoyed the first season, it's much darker this time around. Dealing with grief and recovery, um, get into it. There's there's four episodes out right now. I think they come out every Sunday. Um, what else have I been watching? Something that has absolutely nothing to do with anything that we normally talk on this po- talk about on this podcast. Uh, you should stream another round. This uh, this nice uh, Swedish sort of character family. Oh, drama. dog! I've been seeing that though. But yes, with Mads Mads Mikkelsen. It is a really good movie, though, right? It's 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 yeah, it's, it's tight. It's tight. Yeah, yeah, like it's tight. It's it's a good movie. Watch that. Yo, Mads voice though. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a sultry. It's it's sultry. Okay. The the music. We'll go out on this note. The music critic uh, Robert Criscow once described. Van Morrison is having, uh, I think, the the greatest voice of any white man who has ever lived, and I think <laughs> Mads Mickelson is like giving Van Morrison giving peak, peak not not COVID truther Van Morrison, but peak Van Morrison a run for his money. Um, if you would like to tell us about who you think, uh, like has the greatest white man voice in history, or if you would like to talk to us about the things that you're watching, or any of the things that we have watched, or them. But that's like, you know, take the first couple of things I said and then there's like 10 feet and then there's them underneath that. 
that we would like and to crash. email us about. And, and then crash. crash beneath yeah, that. and then crash beneath <laughs> that. Email us at soundonlypod at gmail.com. Um, we always love to hear from you. We do, we do. On that note, I'm Justin Charity. And I'm Micah Peters. Shouts out to our producer, Erica Cervantes. We will see y'all next week.